Throughout 2021, we expect 34 issuers in the U.S. high yield index to default either a Chapter 11 filing, a mispayment, or a distressed uh, coercive debt exchange. From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you are an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. Our team of nearly 100 analysts originates research for more than 15,000 readers across the global credit markets. I'm Chris Snow, the U.S. Head of Research, and I'm here with Kai Gilks, Head of Quantitative Group. Hi, Kai. Welcome. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thanks for joining us. You and your team recently published our forecast for high yield defaults for the for 2021, and we came up with a, a target of 4% issuer weighted. Can you talk to our audience about what this number means? Absolutely. So our forecast for 2021 is, is 4%, and by issuer weighted, another way of describing that is equal weighted, we're expecting 4% of the issuers in the U.S. High Yield Index, that's some 860 or so issuers, to default this year. So that's 4% of that number is about 34 defaults. So we're essentially saying that throughout 2021, we expect 34 issuers in the U.S. High Yield Index to default either a Chapter 11 filing, a mispayment, or a distressed uh, coercive debt exchange. So that's the just what the number means, but there are some implications of that number. And the implication of that number is that default rates are going to peak in 2021. And we think they're going to peak most likely in the first quarter and then fall from their current 7.5% back down below the historical average, which happens to be 5.2% between 2000 and 2020. So 4%, 34 defaults, which is potentially something in the range of 50 to 60 billion is going to default this year, but it's going to be a much, much lower default rate than we saw at the end of 2020. Oh, thanks, Kai. I, I think last year's events are helpful to sort of think about what the default forecast does. And as we entered last year, we had a forecast of 3%. We adjusted the model, of course, as we had the onset of the pandemic and the impacts in the U.S. and globally with a revised forecast of 8%. And as you noted, we ultimately came in at 7.5% for the year. Could you put that process in perspective? Yes, it was a, it was a really interesting experience beginning of 2020, when we put out a 3% default rate, the outlook was very positive, low credit volatility, credit market volatility and equity market volatility, lots of positive prospects for sectors. Energy was still weak, but it was certainly wasn't in any way defaulting at the rate that it, has, it was in the second half of 2020. So we were very optimistic. We had a 3% default rate which is actually just 10 basis points lower than the default rate that we finished 2019 with, which was 3.1%. So we were actually calling for a very slight tick down in default rates throughout 2020. That, that all changed very quickly. It's, interestingly, our, our forecast was put out on January 22nd of 2020. And the first confirmed case of the coronavirus in the U.S. was January 21st. So it was actually the day after that first confirmed case. And then the world changed completely. By the end of March, we had the credit market sell-off, the equity markets, 
And so the world is a very different place and it obviously made sense for us to completely revisit our view of default rates given, given the, the wholesale change in the, in the markets and, and the world in general. So our forecast had to be increased and we actually decided to produce a forecast that was somewhat less bearish than a lot of, uh, a lot of market participants were calling for. A lot of people were calling for default rates to end 2020 closer to the levels that we saw back in 2008-2009. We didn't think that things were going to be that bad and there are a number of reasons why and I think we'll get into some of those when we talk a little bit more about the details of the forecast. But we, we decided that 8% was a reasonable representation of how the world had changed specifically, especially in the energy sector. And so we came in at just 50 basis points higher than where default rates actually finished the year, which was, which was a good result. Yeah, it's not too bad. I'd like to tease out that, that point that you made on energy. Of course, it remains one of the more challenged sectors. We've seen elevated default cycles since for, for a decade. You know, Energy has been a meaningful part of the overall high yield index. How much of the default forecast incorporates the stress there? And you know, the question that we get a lot is that, is there an oil price embedded in your forecast? Right. So yes, energy was one of the biggest concerns for us. And it was already a concern for us in sort of 2019. We were saying in 2019 that default rates would be driven by the energy sector, and they were, but default rates were very low. And so all of the rise in default rates that we've seen over the last couple of years has really been down to the, the problems in the energy sector. And so what we did when we updated our forecast was we, we took a, a much closer look at the energy sector. And we basically had a lot of, of, of the approaches that we use for the energy sector reflected both the increased equity volatility as well as the, the, the credit market volatility and specific issuers as well that we were reviewing with, with the help of our analysts. So we did quite a, quite a long piece that looked in detail at the challenges that we'd seen in the, the energy sector after having suffered that sort of one-two punch of you know, the COVID demand destruction as well as the, the OPEC-related supply shock. So the energy sector, which really hadn't recovered from 2015-2016, was then hit with, the, with, with both blows and we called for, I think it was up to 50 defaults from the energy sector in 2020. And I think the realized default rate in the energy sector was pretty close to, to what we had estimated when we updated our forecast. Just in terms of the, the oil price, we don't actually embed, we don't use the oil price as a specific factor in our forecast. The, the oil price volatility is certainly factored in and transmitted through credit market spreads as well as equity volatility for energy issuers. So we feel that the, that transmission mechanism is really fast and really efficient, and there's no need for us to have a separate oil price consideration in our forecast. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you see a high correlation between oil prices or energy prices and, and, and security prices. Absolutely. Um, you know, as we kind of look going forward is that, you know, energy is still somewhat of a challenge sector. You know, what are the other sectors that the model is highlighting as being uh, particularly challenged? And there's some probably obvious ones that were still in the impacts of the pandemic. 
Yes, that's right. I mean, as we as we mentioned in our in our publication, energy is standing out from all other sectors in terms of the levels of distress in terms of spreads above a thousand basis points. But in terms of problem sectors, we are still seeing pressure, certainly in transportation, leisure. We're also seeing some 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 weakening in sort of basic industries. So there are specific names that we are looking at and, and tracking. It's more of an idiosyncratic sort of situation than a, than a systemic problem. But there's definitely fundamental weakness in in some of those sectors, and the, the long tail from the COVID pandemic is likely to to result in some defaults coming from those those more. I'm not going to say troubled, but certainly sectors that are still under some stress. But it's certainly far below the uh, the concerns that we have for for the energy sector this year. Gotcha. I'd like to dig in a little bit deeper about how our default forecast is constructed. There's the bottom-up perspective, which is our model, which takes a look at the index constituents individual credit risk estimate, which is our proprietary assessment of company default risk over the next 12 months. There's also a, a version which would be top down um, using overall market spread levels or, 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 or what have you uh, as a signal to estimate a default rate. Could you talk a little bit about why our forecast is constructed the way it is? Absolutely. So we're very keen to provide different perspectives on default risk and compare those different perspectives in order to, to make sure that we are, I guess, challenging views that come from different places or different signals. So we, we always talk about this sort of bottom-up versus top-down approach. We work with our strategy team in terms of thinking top-down about you know, where are the risks. We look at distress ratios. We look at different sectors. We understand what the market is pricing in. And so that's, that's the sort of the top-down view. We have a simple approach which takes the, the US high yield index spread and actually by a very simple sort of linear regression model converts that option adjusted spread to a default rate. And that is something that we're gonna be doing more work on in the future in terms of thinking about that, both in terms of spread as well as in terms of price, both in terms of the overall index as well as sector by sector. So we're gonna be doing some work in terms of how we think of that top down approach. But for now, it's a very basic saying, this is how we convert the U.S. high yield spread to a future nine-month forward default rate. From a bottom-up, it gets more interesting because bottom-up, we have our bond score default model. We're looking at a large cross-section of issuers in the high yield index and evaluating their 12-month default risk and then being able to aggregate that company-level default risk is very important. Not only do we use our quantitative model, we also rely on our analysts to give us their qualitative, sort of an overlay of the qualitative views to challenge our bond score model or indeed to supplement the default risk estimates in some cases where bond score doesn't have enough data to cover the company. And so our bottom-up exercise is fleshed out a little bit by working with our sector analysts and we find that, that input very, very valuable in order to, to come up with that bottom-up view of the index. I think the key here is that we can get two answers. One answer coming from the top-down approach based on spreads, and then the other answer coming from this aggregated sort of bottom-up view. 
the, the key is whether those are in line or whether they are divergent. And if they're divergent, we need to ask more questions and understand what's the source of the divergence. And there have been cases where, for example, market spreads are reacting very fast. We're not seeing as much increase in equity volatility. So we might put more weight on the top-down versus the bottom-up approach just because things are moving very fast. So I know I've, I've said quite a bit about that, but I think the idea is to compare the two, see if they challenge and, and diverge from each other, and use that to actually ask questions and come up with a more robust and more reliable forecast. Well, thanks. One of the challenges that our credit analysts see in the current market is valuation. And you have high prices, tight spreads across sectors and, 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 and names. Yeah, how does that influence the model? On the one hand, there's a good case that larger equity cushions are inherent credit supports. But we all have a skeptical eye about what the future looks like and there's potential volatility and, and, and those equity cushions can often be, be fleeting. How does your model adapt to that? Yeah, this is a great question. We, we, we do get it a lot. It's that sort of that, that contrast or that, that challenge in valuation versus fundamentals or you know, other, other qualitative considerations. And the, the model or the, the forecast isn't, is, is from a top-down perspective, if you're just looking at market spreads and trying to get a sense of what the signal is on, on future default rates, then yes, uh, valuation, it's all about valuation. It's all about you know, the level of sentiment and, and in, in the market. And so right now, for example, the market spreads are pricing in a level of default risk, which is actually quite a bit lower than our forecast. So we feel that there's, while on the one hand, you can have a sell-off that, that leads to an overreaction or you know, the anticipation of, of greater, than, than, uh, greater default rates than, than one might reasonably expect, it also, the flip side is that, that markets, when they're grinding tighter, can suggest that default rates will fall even lower than, than one might expect. So we are not using the full impact of the top-down approach at the moment. We, we're, we're sort of being a little bit more cautious. So instead of using something like a 2% or a 3% forecast, we are currently at 4%. So we don't think default rates are going to fall as far as prices and spreads are indicating right now. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I guess to, to follow on from that, and, and this is probably more from the fundamental perspective, another question we get on the fundamental side, and I, I'd be curious to see how the quantitative model deals with it, is the idea that we've seen a lot of issuance over the last year. And, and a lot of the issuance has been to solve liquidity needs rather than you know growth ambitions of particular companies. And so that, you know, the thesis would be that, you know, that's got to come home to roost and that if, you know, fundamentals were to go in a different direction, that this added debt would be a hindrance to, to companies and, and obviously a result in an uptick in default rates. Now, how does the model look at that factor? Yes, that's, a, that's another, another important consideration. The fundamentals, certainly if there's been a, there's been a large amount of, of debt issuance, you know, Issuers have been really keen to preserve liquidity and refinance low interest rate environment. That, with a lag, that influences leverage, interest coverage. We're starting to, we're already seeing the, the rise in leverage, certainly across a lot of different rating categories of the, of the investment grade and high yield indices. And so we're, we always keep a sort of a BDI on those fundamental metrics 
they do f play into our forecast in terms of the bottom-up bond score view, because bond score considers both the equity component as well as the, the fundamental component. So leverage, increasing leverage, decreasing interest coverage, and cash, free cash flow, et cetera, will play into the, uh, the bottom-up view of bond score over time. But that takes a while to, to feed into the model. It doesn't have as much of a weight as equity market influences does over the near term, but it, over the medium term, it certainly has a huge weight. So deteriorating fundamentals on the back of, of large amounts of debt issuance will ultimately come home to roost. That's great. Well, thanks, Kai. I really appreciate you going over the model. The quantitative model is certainly a way that can help the fundamental guys make sure that they're they're keeping emotion out of these stories. And, and, and as we assess the future, the 4% forecast is really helpful. So thank you. You're welcome. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. And thank you, listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit size disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.